Hi, this is Anina Livingstone, and you are listening to my new podcast, Tending the Soul of Relationship. I want to welcome you by offering all of the interviews from my seven-week Clarity of Calling online course. This was the topic of my doctoral research based on my own struggles, curiosity, and passion for the topic. So if you're looking for more clarity, courage, or commitment as you tend to your calling, you've come to the right place. I've interviewed my most cherished mentors and respected colleagues to bring you this wealth of supportive wisdom. If you'd like to take the course in its entirety, feel free to go to my website at www.aninialivingstone.com where you can download the ebook and accompanying weekly guidance. I wish you all the courage and clarity you need to fulfill your calling so that together we can create a more vibrant world. Hi everyone, we have an additional interview today on the topic of calling and the allies with Timothy Flynn. I'm going to start by reading his bio, which is in the first person. I first became interested in shamanism as a young teenager when when I realized the methods of addressing death and spiritual suffering in my community were greatly lacking in effectiveness and authenticity. As a young person confronting illness and loss, and later as a dancer suffering from a debilitating chronic joint condition, I struggled to find a way to heal myself emotionally, spiritually, and physically. My involvement with shamanism really blossomed when I first received healing from a shamanic practitioner in my 20s. Like many who practice core shamanism, my own healing provided the invitation for me to pursue training. After integrating several years of healing, I went on to study with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies and earned my master's from JFK University's Transformative Arts Master's Program. My graduate thesis on ritual performance gave me the opportunity to combine my love of dance, theater, healing, and shamanism. So welcome, Timothy Flynn. Hi, Anania. Hi. I'm so glad to have you on this call. It's great to be here. Great. So I have known Timothy since I was about 22 years old, and um, as it said in his bio, he's been uh, engaging this work for a very long time and has a lot of wisdom to share. And one of the reasons I invited you, Tim, is because I feel like you have the ability to make this work very accessible and uh, I really want that for the people listening on this call. And so we'll have two interviews this this particular week, and I think they're very complimentary. So um, thanks for bringing your wisdom. Yeah, I'm delighted. Great. All right. So um, as I was mentioning to you before we started the call, I have this very like childlike quality arising when I think of interviewing you. I just kind of want to jump into a bunch of questions and come from a very – beginner's mind place with this topic uh-huh. and just, you know, ask like kind of allies 101, but even less than that, because that sounds like the university, just kind of, yeah, just a childlike inquiry. So I hope that we can play together that way. Great. Yeah. So let's see. Well, I always ask people first about their calling. If there's anything you want to share about your story, how you understand your calling, how you yeah. came to understand You know, it. I was thinking about that today and and, it, you know, you and I have been talking about animal spirits earlier in sort of preparation for this call. And I remember the time in my 20s when I was really struggling. And, you know, I went through a lot of my life falling apart and a lot of emotional challenges over kind of past trauma and things like that. And uh, I had been watching a Joseph Campbell interview, and he was talking about what a functioning myth or sort of sacred story was like in a person's life. He said that, 
a real myth should give you a feeling of what it is to truly be alive. It should resonate deeply, deeply with your soul. And I realized I didn't really have a kind of sacred story in my life like that. And I thought to myself, if I kind of took that nugget and turned it inside out, and if I asked myself, well, what is it in the world that, that resonates with me deeply, that's real in life, what gives me a feeling of, of the sacredness of life? And if I pursue that as a spiritual practice, maybe it'll just unfold for me. And for me, animals has, have always been just kind of a way to connect with the sacred. You know, when I look in an animal's eyes, I'm just moved in that way. And so it was kind of through that that I sort of started to pursue my interest in shamanism and, and in particular spirituality as it related to animals and nature. Mm. Great. And do you have a way that you understand yourself in terms of your purpose or your calling? So that's one way that you've connected with the other world and this world, and we'll talk about the continuum of that. But anything else you want to say about, you know, maybe a mythic name of any kind or what you... Sure. You know, in a way, I feel like for, for many of us, our purpose is constantly blossoming and unfolding in our culture because our culture is changing so rapidly and the, the challenges we're all facing are so intense sometimes. Mm. So, um, you know, I do feel a calling as a teacher and a writer and a storyteller. And, you know, when we do shamanic work, we tend not to claim the moniker shaman, at least in the people who I train with, because out of respect for indigenous peoples. But I do definitely work with the spirits. So, you know, if I were to to say, break it down into one phrase, I would say um, a student of the spirits. That's how I see myself. Mm, I love that. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, you, you already touched on something that I actually haven't spoken to in any interview, and I think it's a really important point. So um, it's kind of slightly off topic, but not really in terms of just being respectful of indigenous cultures. Can you say anything about that? I'm curious about your not using the word shaman. and. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I got a great little piece this weekend that I'd love to share. I, I taught a, uh, a class this weekend, The Way of the Shaman for the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, and, uh, you know, the topic of indigenous cultures came up. And I realized that there are ways in which you know, we, those of us who are not indigenous and not just Caucasian people, but, you know, all of us sort of modern Western people, I think there are ways where our souls speak to us and we have these intuitions and these strong feelings about the sacredness of life and the sacredness of culture, the sacredness that these different cultures have. And we have a tendency to kind of borrow little bits and bobs here and there. It's almost like we're sort of filling in the cracks with wisdom and information from other cultures. And I think that's a very natural process. I think that just happens in life. But, you know, in the West, we can kind of get a little crazy with it and get carried away with it. Um, you know, the controversy about uh, the redskins is kind of still flying around right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I think what that really points to is the need for us to do our own work. And I think when we see ourselves making reference to an indigenous practice, I think it's wonderful to be inspired by that and if we can, to study with the indigenous teachers. And it also points to work that we all need to bring to our own culture. You know, um, somebody recently wrote a piece about the Day of the Dead, Dios de los Muertos, and 
feeling like it was sort of being capitalized upon by people who didn't have a, a deep connection to the ancestral work that it is. And, and the article was kind of harsh and critical, as those articles can be, but in the end, it was encouraging people to reclaim that kind of work for themselves. And I think that's really, in a way, at the heart of that discussion is um, it's so important to be respectful of indigenous cultures also as, as sort of ways to inspire us and lead us back into deeper truths for ourselves. Mm. Thank you, yeah. So there's often a empty void when we turn away from other cultures for many of us, like you said, the Western moderns, mm-hmm. modern Western. Um, you know, there's this empty void, and we don't know what to do when we look in it because we don't find our indigenous souls, and that's a term I'm comfortable using, I'm not sure if you are, but our indigenous souls uh, know that there's medicine in our bones, knows that there's a different way to live, And because we often, not all of us, I'll speak for myself, it's taken a very long time to find any of it in my own lineage. I'm finally finding it there. But um, so is there anything you can say about facing that void? um, Yeah, and and you as a creative person, I think, can relate to this. You know, um, I think that even if we find our own indigenous ancestry, and I'm, I'm of primarily Irish descent, and there's a lot of rich uh, wisdom there about living with the land and working with the ancestors. And I'm really diving into it right now in different ways and really loving it. And, you know, that's a way of spirituality that came out of that way of life. And I, even though I live in a nice homestead and we garden and, and my wife is an organic farmer, I'm never really going to be living quite that way. And so I think, in a way, our ancestors are compelling us to create our own way. Mm. And, and that void, that empty space is scary, but it's also a creative, you know, chamber in which for us to fill. And so I think, again, we have to kind of do what I think you're already doing, which is look into those voids and listen to our intuition, our own spirit, and, and learn from our own ancestry and other ancestry, and then act. You know, I think the challenges we face are about how to get our kids to talk to us instead of be on our cell phones and their cell phones. And I think, you know, there's a sacred answer to that. Mm-hmm. And and I do want to highlight one other thing, you know, I think in this this dialogue about ancestry, way of life is a is a key piece, you know. Um, it's great to to uh, embrace our ancestral traditions and we need to we need to resonate with the earth deeply in in how we live our daily lives and if we're really going to kind of pull ourselves out of this this climate change spiral we're in we can't just reference a spirituality that's based on a way of life that is no longer around or that we're not living you know mm-hmm. we have to find a way to forge a way of life that resonates with our souls and resonates with the soul of nature right that's really our job that's this generation. Everybody who's listening, get to work. <laughs> All them out. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you for for that. Um, that's really important. And I've, you know, I I have gone to um, study Andean and Tibetan, Nepalese, and West African. And you know, there was always a question in my mind. You know, am I appropriating? Am I, um, I should really be going into my own lineage. And I did speak with that in another interview. I'm forgetting who, with who. But um, 
Oh, I remember that was a ritual interview, so it was different. But uh, what I came to is that in the end, I had to follow my soul where it was guiding me, even though I was very aware of the political ramifications and the cultural, you know, issues involved. Yeah. And oppression involved and all that. And then eventually, years after studying other cultures, the Jewish traditions have opened up in terms of their sacred and mystical realm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I couldn't force myself there. I tried, and it didn't stick. And so the thing that feels important for me to say in terms of that is that it's really a balance of um, acknowledging our values if we're really trying to be aware and conscious about not taking from others' cultures and listening to where our soul is guiding us and just being as respectful as possible if we are engaging other, other cultural ways of remembering what lives in our bones. You know? Yeah, I agree, and that's that's a challenge, I think, because there's so much great critique and insight being offered up by academics about, um, you know, cultural appropriation and all of these issues, and we all need to learn from them. But it's also true that, you know, many of those academic critiques don't include the soul in their critique. Right, right, right. They're not really talking about what's going on metaphysically or spiritually. They're just talking about it, you know, academia's, is predominantly steeped in a worldview that doesn't include souls and spirits. And that's not going to get us there either. You know, that's not enough either. And I think you're right. You have to listen to your soul. And, you know, when I sit in circle at a Celtic workshop, there are people there who have no Celtic lineage whatsoever, and they feel drawn there, and I think they should be welcomed, you know. Mm-hmm. I think they should be embraced. I realize the dynamics are different with other cultures and power, but... Um, on some level, there's a, you know a fundamental truth about human beings inspiring each, each other, and I think that that has to continue. And maybe you know maybe the proof is in the pudding. Maybe it's ultimately what we do with all of that inspiration, and how we heal ourselves and heal our culture that makes it worthwhile. Mm. Yeah. Well, before I transition and use this as a kind of bridge to the next piece, I just also want to add that uh, Maladoma Same, who I am currently studying with uh, um, around West African shamanism, really says that this is a time of synthesis, you know, that that's, that's what's happening now and that we just, you know, need to also accept that yeah. while being conscious of all the, the real issues involved, you know. Yeah. So anyway, I'm glad we're speaking to this because it's a really important thing to address before we jump into recovering our own indigenous souls and how in God's name do we do that when we've been trained out of them. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, So where I wanted to go was this. So for me, when I'm speaking about allies, I'm really talking in a very broad way. And I know a lot of cultures, the focus is really more on animals specifically. Um, I'm also including elements in terms. I'm talking about anything from the other world, and I would love to hear how you kind of speak to this. We've got nature and spirit. We've got this world of form and then we have spirit and where I'm trying to help people um, kind of travel to in themselves is that, let's see, that's exactly why I want to talk to you, is like how to word this piece. Hold on one sec, let me feel into it. Um, We're trained to see things on a very kind of physical level and yet there's this spirit in everything, right? And so I would love if you would speak about that nature, spirit, the physical realm, the spiritual realm. Sure. How do we, how do we enter that in, well, let in the me, most let me, way possible? I mean, it's really how we're made, right? So how do we do that? 
Well, let me put down some more slats on that bridge you're building from the earlier piece about, you know, um, respecting indigenous cultures. I, and, and in a sense, losing our indigenous soul. I, the way I kind of think about it in terms of teaching shamanism is that in the West, um, religion pushed us away from shamanism and then science pushed us away from the soul altogether. Mm. And I think in, in many cultures with an act, active shamanic element, what I would call a shamanic element, um, there is a sense of the tangibility of spirit in their daily lives. And that's what you know, 20 years of practicing, uh, doing shamanic work has really brought out for me is this sense of really the tangibility of other people's spirits and how so much of our learning and education is based around the idea that there's no such thing as a spirit. And so once you start taking off those blinders and you really start, you know, looking at your friends and not thinking about, you know, why do they look this way because they're feeling bad? Maybe they're looking this way because something's going on with their soul. Mm. And so I think that there is something about the tangibility and presence of the soul that does seem to be more familiar in, a, in an indigenous culture than in ours. And in a way, we've kind of um, banished the soul from our language and our daily lives in many ways. And so we've banished the soul of nature. I think that's something that many people can agree upon. I mean, there are nature writers who honor that, but it's not really a mainstream theme. And, and we banish the souls in, in ourselves and each other, in a way. Right. And so, you know, I think there are many ways that people come back to that, that sort of tangible, immediate, physical, nature-based sense of presence. Um, but I think ultimately, part of it is just reframing your momentary experience. You know, mm -hmm. I... I sit in workshops as a student and as a teacher and talking to people, and some people are like, you know, wow, these people over here, they're amazing. They're seeing spirits. They're seeing all this stuff, but I don't see anything. And, you know, if you talk to some of these people long enough and they start talking about what they feel and how they perceive things naturally, it becomes quickly clear that they have a very strong impression of spirit in their daily lives. But the way that they define what they're experiencing is it doesn't allow that to really bloom in them. Right. So we compare ourselves. We have a picture of what it's supposed to look like, and then we don't really acknowledge the way we're perceiving. Yeah, we're kind of always categorizing things away and not really allowing ourselves to, um, to just embrace what is metaphysical in the moment, you know, looking into your dog's eyes and just feeling this warmth and this power because you love this animal that's been in your life and feeling like it's more than just biochemistry, that there's something there, and giving yourself permission, you know, to go there. Right. So I think that's one way. You know, another way which is somewhat comical, and but one of my favorite ways, is to look at the mainstream traditions like Christmas and Santa Claus and start digging at them and get to the shamanic metaphysical elements. So I journey regularly to Santa Claus. And, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And if, I don't know if you've explored this, but Santa Claus was likely part of a, a shamanic ritual cult, culture among the Sami people, having to do with reindeer and ingesting mushrooms and, you know, doing your spiritual work in, in the wintertime during the solstice and going on soul journeys to spirit. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, as far as my son is concerned, Santa Claus is a compassionate helping spirit that lives in the upper world and can sometimes manifest on the earth. 
And every year I journey to Santa and I ask him for gifts to give my family. And one of the gifts uh, Santa asked me to make for my son is this beautiful little Christmas wand that we put in the Christmas tree and it absorbs the Christmas spirit and he gets to go around and bless everyone mm-hmm. with the Christmas spirit. Love that. Yeah, and so and the spirit of Santa, you know, crazy and commercial that that sounds, is actually really quite real to us now, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have a real gift of the just the, making it a very daily and, in a way, ordinary experience to incorporate the spirit or the soul into into your life. Yeah, and I I think that that's really the hallmark of many kind of existing tribal shamanic cultures. You know, when you stub your toe, they do spirit work on your toe. You know, and when you you know accidentally run over a snake, well, you do spirit work about that. You know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of the bread and butter that I think creates the foundation for the bigger openings that, that I think a lot of us are looking for, you know. So if you could speak to, so, you know, we've, I have these journaling invitations every week, and some of them are somatic and some of them are land-based and some of them are more image-based, like collaging and things like that. And what I'm hoping for this particular week with the allies is that people get a sense of, how to move from that Western conditioning where things are less, where you can't perceive the soul in things as easily, or you don't realize you already are perceiving it, right? Mm-hmm. Or in soul experience. So, and uh, one of my favorite, you know, ways to do that for myself is to walk in nature. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most potent ways that, you know, we can explore that is in nature. So can you speak to that? Like if you say you've never really connected with the spirit in nature, mm. how would you move from seeing a tree as that's a pine and that's an oak and that's a, you know, how do you move from that Western conditioning to something else, something deeper, wider, more relational? Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, I know, Anina, you studied eco-psychology and one of the things that I understand is talked about in that is... Um, kind of the rejuvenating power of nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in, actually I think it's Japanese culture, there's a tradition of forest walking as sort of a restorative practice. You know, for me, the body is such a key avenue to get in touch with things, like what we're talking about. You know, going, going to spirit through the body is kind of how I work a lot of the time. And so I think if you can find yourself a place in nature with an aspect of nature, that really impacts your body positively. You know, for example, finding a, a special place by a stream and just the sound of the stream or whatever it is, just let your body center and relax. And some of the trees, you know, we're so blessed in California with these extraordinary mighty trees, the redwoods and the oaks and, and even the eucalyptus. Um, you know, I find that some of these trees, if I just spend a few moments with them, it's just my whole body changes how I, how I feel the moment. So I think that is a great, practical, wonderful way to start building a relationship with nature as spirit. And just remember to, to kind of be thankful um, when you go into nature and you receive a moment uh, like that. That's sort of the beginning of a relationship. You're given something from, from a spirit in nature and you say thank you. So I think, you know, allowing yourself to kind of, 
expand the bounds of what's physical is a great way to start. You know, physical sometimes is really spiritual. I think um, Alan Watts, uh, who who was not officially a shaman, but certainly said a lot of shamanic things, he was a Zen teacher, said, um, the body is inside the soul, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, if you're in nature and your body relaxes, maybe your body's relaxing because your spirit is opening up. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. You just, you do, you make things accessible. Thank you. Well, and I, you know, like you, being young and, and having these yearnings and these needs to explore this stuff, um, you're, you're so hungry, you have to make it basic and practical sometimes, you know? Right. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of expand from, so you're talking about a body experience and you're talking about a nonverbal experience. Mm-hmm. Of just allowing and not reaching for anything, just being letting yourself be allured to a place which feels positive, mm-hmm. and then seeing what happens there. Right. So there's not a lot of doing. The the main doing is like, oh, what feels good, and can you go there, and then allowing something to happen. Right. Yeah, and let me interject briefly. I know you're going somewhere, but uh, for me as a Westerner, I think learning to receive is like the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I'm really stuck and things are just really awful in my life, I know that if I stop and I ask myself, okay, what am I not receiving right now? That there's always something that life is giving me that I'm not allowing in. And mm-hmm. so I think that if, you know, honestly, if we all just got out into the forest and were emotionally capable of allowing in everything that's being given to us, the whole planet would change. I mean, really, that's, that's how big of a deal it is. So, so I, you know, you, you mentioned that, just allowing, and I think that's really key. Yes. Yeah, we're we're blind to our own conditioning sometimes. I mean, that's so huge what you're talking about about receiving and yeah. how how that can be so difficult, but we may not even realize that that's such a simple shift that we can make. Yeah. And you're naming that. Yeah. Yeah. So if we were to take that's that would be the first baby step. If we were to step one f- step further into this realm, mm-hmm. well, into the experience of actually having a conversation, let's say, in right. nature. Right? So you're there, you've softened enough that you can actually be in relationship. You've, you, there's some reciprocity happening with your gratitude. So relationship is building. Say you do that, not necessarily this is one day, but maybe, you know, after some time developing that connection, you're ready for some conversation, right? Yeah. And so can you speak about that? How, how do we converse with nature? How does that happen? Because we have this mind, and when we go to our mind, sometimes that energetic or body sense that you were talking about can close down. So how do we have a conversation and still stay in that porous, open, available state? Well, you know, I think um, that is why people who, who do a lot of shamanic work have tools to alter their consciousness to get into that space. Mm. And, you know, some of those tools are just, you know, choosing the right time and place where you'll be undisturbed. Some of those tools are, you know, I'm not going to talk about sacred medicine because I don't really do that much work in that area, and there's, I'm sure, other people who could talk about it. But um, some of those tools are rhythm and percussion and movement and breathing. Um, there's, uh, there are places where they've found these... Um, rock grinding areas where 
native people at one time could be, you know, grinding flour by putting acorns into a, a hole in the ground and, and grinding it with a rock. And there are some spots that they assume were actually more kind of ritualistic grinding spots where people might be actually altering their consciousness by rhythmically grinding rocks together. Mm-hmm. Um, so one way to kind of ensure that you're, you're staying in that space is to open up to rhythm and uh, the, the sort of openness and alteredness that that brings. And the Foundation for Shamanic Studies has some some drumming stuff. I don't. I'm not trying to do a big sort of publicity thing here, but they they have. There's some studies that say that a certain kind of rhythm is optimal mm. for inducing kind of a light trance state that will allow you to work. So that that can be useful. The other thing I think is just understanding that um, life is an is an ongoing conversation and it never stops. And and we in the West are not participating in it very much. Most of us. But life is actually, I think, always talking to all of us. And it really is about just showing up for the rest of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, if you've worked into a space where you've got a spot that's feeling good for, you, good for you and you feel like you can hold the state of consciousness that will be open and, and will, is sort of participatory in the way that you're talking and you know, I really like that, mm-hmm. that way of looking at it, um, then you can bring an intention, then you can bring a question, then you can ask for something, or you can offer to do something and see what happens. You know, one of the techniques we use is to, um, to ask a question and then just observe what happens around you and, and intuit how that might answer your question. Mm. So I think that's a, a good way to start. I've, I've developed kind of my own sense of when nature is reaching out to me and talking to me about my behavior or, or something. And that can involve seeing spirits in, you know, green men or the, the faces of spirits in plants. That can involve visitations from animals who I work with in the spirit world. Um, but there, there are definitely some key signs that over the years, because I've been in conversation, um, you sort of start to develop a language. Let's say that. That is great. That's so important. Yeah, because if when you're just starting, you know, say, you know, a little chipmunk comes up to your foot and you just go, oh, that's interesting, and, you know, don't think anything of it. But if you spend enough time and every time you go into kind of one of those participatory states and a chipmunk shows up, then you start realizing I am being spoken to, right? So I love what you're saying about those key signs that we can start, we can start gathering, realizing that we are being spoken to, and sometimes it's as simple as noticing that we're drawn to something again and again. Like every time the mushroom co- mushrooms come in this season, mm-hmm. some part of me feels sane. Like, thank God the mushrooms are here. I need to see them. And I don't know why. And there's, I, I'm in the beginning of my conversation with them, meaning I don't know really what they're wanting to say to me, but I track the fact that there's something about the mushrooms that feels vital, right? So there's That's just, wonderful, yeah. That's exactly yeah. where you need to go. That's perfect, yeah. Right. And I think that um, sometimes in our culture, again, getting back to that original topic, we have this yearning, and so we go to other cultures. We say, oh, a mushroom, what does that mean? Or, you know, a gopher crossed my path, or a squirrel. Uh, let me go look in a book and find out what that means. And that's fine, and I've, I've done that, and I you know, may very well do that again. But it's a different process than what you're talking about, right. which is about 
being open to the developing relationship, being open to the developing conversation, being open to the developing language. You know, in the foundation work, we say that um, metaphor is the language of spirit, that when the spirits talk to us, typically, not always, but they, they use metaphor to communicate to us. And Jung, you know, famously said, metaphor is the language of the unconscious. Well, in nature, we have these amazing beings speaking to us through their bodies and their actions and just their presence. Right. In shamanic lingo, we would say there's spiritual power being communicated to you. There's energy, there's knowledge, there's intelligence, there's essence that in a way is, is being fed to your spirit and is strengthening your spirit. So it's not only the, the kind of meaning that we can discern, but it's also the energy of the presence. And that's, I think, our souls, why our souls are drawn to things like forests. You know, I think our spirits are literally made stronger and healthier mm-hmm. by these communications we're given. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, not everybody has, uh, you know, lives close to forests. Sometimes it's got to be a park or the grass or a particular tree out, you know, where there's, it's not that far from maybe a busy street. And can you say anything about that? Yeah. I mean, I feel two ways about that. I mean, in, in shamanic work, especially if you practiced in journeying and altering your consciousness, you can really work almost anywhere and go almost anywhere if you've got the energy and, and you know, you're set right. Um, and I want to fight for the forest. You know, I want us to have the expectation. Well, here's, here's my dream. I think there's no reason why our cities shouldn't look like massive forests. Mm-hmm. I think that we have kind of the science and the technology and the imagination somehow to make something like that happen. Right. You know, and so I think I'd like us to continue to agitate for that. And, you know, you don't just need a forest. There's the ocean, there's streams, there's flower beds. You're right. I mean, anything living. And and nature and creatures find their way into every nook and cranny of every city. You know, I had a a Japanese teacher once say that, you know, you, you Americans, you Westerners, you think that human beings are separate from nature. And so we, when you're in the city, you think the city's separate from nature. Mm-hmm. And his, his sense was that nothing is ever separate from nature. We're just right. kind of changing it to suit our needs, and perhaps we change it so much that we diminish its power to heal and nourish us, but it's, it's always nature. Right. So, I, you know, it's one of those things where I feel both ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I think it's great work. I, there, there are people who do... Um, uh, edible plant walks through cities, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's wonderful stuff. I love that stuff. Right. Yeah, it's it's an important piece. I love what you're advocating for, and I, I know that sometimes people who feel like they don't have as, as quick and easy access um, feel limited by some of the invitations sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had... I've had some of my greatest experiences indoors with, you know, a, um, a little bouquet of flowers. So it can happen anywhere, and I just think that's important to remember as well, right? Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, just to, to support that, I think that in some cultures that's part of the tradition of the arts. Mm. So Taoist painters were the ones who would go off into the hills and walk and absorb the energy of the landscape, and they'd come down and they'd paint they put into the painting the chi or the energy that they experienced, and then people would sit with the artwork in their home and, and receive that energy. Beautiful. 
so I think, you know, I agree. Many of my most powerful experiences have been indoors, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of place to explore that, too. Great. So I'm just, we have about 10 minutes left, so I want to, um, you know, again, my intention is, like, just to make this as potently accessible as possible. And so you started off with the body, right? Yeah. And I'm just going to return there for a moment and share that, um, you know, I don't bring, I used to, I used to always bring a rattle and always bring offerings, and I really made a lot of effort to connect for many years, and that was great. And then I went through a phase where I didn't want to work so hard. I was like, this has to be able to happen without so much effort, right? Right. So it was kind of an inquiry to discover, well, what would happen if I, if, I, if I didn't? And I just want to share one of the simplest ways for me to um, kind of open in what you call like shift your state of consciousness is movement. So if I stand in front of a, a redwood, I may just stand there and see kind of like authentic movement. Do you know that form? Yes. You know, basically, you're just allowing yourself to see what wants to move. Maybe my head just wants to move back or down, or maybe my arms want to move open and stay there for a while. And mm-hmm. and when we do that, not only do we kind of, um, you know, become receptive to ourselves, but then we're in relationship, we're doing it in relationship, and a lot can change with so little, you know. And so I just want to throw that in the mix again to keep... keep uh, I'm advocating for simplicity, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah. maybe to, comp, uh, to complicate it a little tiny bit, um, you know, a traditional shamanic practice might be biomimicry. So, um, uh. And we do, we do a dance called the tree dance, and it's a foundation work. Mm. And so we'll, you know, stand in a forest and become a tree or, you know, see an animal that's moving in a way that evokes something for you and then move that way too. So, yeah, I think, and... Just very much an authentic movement tradition, being in the presence of that energy and just allowing things to move is, is wonderful work. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that, too. I, one of the homework assignments for this week, actually, is to um, you know, feel into an ally that you feel really related to in some way and, and let it move you. Let, it, you know, let yourself kind of merge, merge with it. I know that's one of the terms you use. And, um, and see what happens when you become that related, right? So biomimicry is, is a really great great thing to bring in. I appreciate that. Yeah. And that, you know, when, when you're doing kind of the, the very focused shamanic work, you might call on the spirit of that, uh, that ally that you're attracted to and invite it to enter into your body. And one of the ways to kind of encourage that process is that biomimicry is mm-hmm. doing that movement. Yeah. Yeah, is there anything else you want to say since there's actually a homework assignment on that? Is there anything else you want to add to that piece around merging or Yeah. Uh, there's you know, it's such it's such a huge world unto its own. I wouldn't on a, in a sense I wouldn't know where to begin, but I will say that um, connections to childhood, you know, when you when you start to do this work, some some of us will have these threads that pop up like, "Oh, you know, I remember I had this stuffed animal." when I was two years old, and then I remember I was in love with horses or whatever it was. Right. And you start to see this theme emerge in your life of your spirit's attraction and nature's response to that attraction that's, that's been really a core of who you are, but you didn't really realize it because you weren't actively engaging it in, in a creative way. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's great to notice those and invite those. And, you know, it's okay to be silly, 
and to be mm-hmm. a about it and to do things that are childlike and a little childish and to give yourself permission mm-hmm. to really just do whatever you need to do. You know? Right. Like mm-hmm. you were saying about exploring other cultures, you know, there is there's a part of us that needs to explore and create and touch touch down on, on many different things in order to maybe let our parts of our spirits know that it's really safe to come out again. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Good. Well, that's great. Yeah, I we also interviewed Marty Spiegelman this week, and she spoke about that as well. So that's a nice that's a nice bridge. And nice. Um, yeah, good. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do, and so people can reach you if they're um, wanting some support? And uh, yeah, just let us know what you're up to right now. Okay. So um, I do a fair amount of writing at my uh, website, AlchemistsJournal.com. And you can just do Tim Flynn Alchemist Journal and it'll pop up. Um, I teach for the Foundation for Shamanic Studies and I'm, you know, always working on my own coursework. I have a lot of background in movement. And I'm hoping to start to do some uh, youth education based in the forest and in spirituality. So I'm, I'm very excited about this topic. So it's great that, that you brought it up. And also I do shamanic healing. So... Uh, a lot of the foundation's work is focused very much on healing, and specifically it's spirit doctoring, so we're doctoring people's souls. Mm-hmm. So on my website you can click on the little healing tab and there's a rundown of all the different kinds of healing work that I do. And what is the URL of your website? Uh, it is alchemists, and it's kind of hard to pronounce, alchemistsjournal.com. Alchemistjournal.com. Okay, very good. And um, during our week on the ancestors, we spoke some of ancestors who are not at peace. And mm-hmm. um, is there anything you want to say about that in terms of you being a resource for helping helping people cross over? Yeah, we do. We we call that work psychopomp work, mm-hmm. um, which is from a Greek word having to do with. Uh, I, I believe it's it's translated as conductor of souls. But that's a lot of the work we do uh, in in our healing work. Is um, we don't have a lot of active psychopomp work going on in our culture right now. So there are a lot of spirits that are not settled, and so we work with our compassionate helping spirits to help those spirits find their way to where they need to be. Right. And do you work non-locally? I do. I do work remotely, although there are certain kinds of work where if people call me, I might say, hey, let me try and find a resource in your area that I can recommend because the foundation kind of has listings and things of that nature, and and I can usually direct somebody to somebody in person if if it has to be done in person. Okay, very good. All right, well, I just, you know, I'm giving a big plug for Timothy Flynn. I've known him forever, and, I, you know, I've sent clients to whom have been extremely happy with his work. And um, so I just want you all to know that he's a great, great resource. All right. And so, Anina Livingston rocks. <laughs> you can tell we're old friends. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, and maybe we'll have another one another time. We'll go in more depth. All right? Awesome. Take care. Okay. Bye.